the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Our Father would be deeply moved when he said with great faith that part of the creed that produced a kind of a pause in his prayer. And he wrote this down in the way. This is what made him pause almost with emotion, savoring the words. Etunam sanctam catholicam et apostolicam ecclesiam. I believe in one holy, catholic and apostolic church. He said, I can understand why you pause to relish your prayer. I believe in the church, one holy, catholic and apostolic. He paused. That pause was partly due to emotion, was partly due to the fact that he wanted to savor these words, to taste its beauty like a good wine that you're supposed to turn around in the in the cup and you watch it flow there in the cup, in the in the in the wine glass, and then you savor it. This is a very you know important uh, bottle of Chardonnay, you know? and you you know it better be good, otherwise you're just going to go down straight. I mean, you're not even going to taste it. You got to savor it, feel the aroma, smell it. Aha! Yes, this is a Chardonnay from 1969 or whatever year you know or Merlot right and uh, he wanted to savor that truth kind of to re-acknowledge the great mystery which we well understood but did not fully understand and it is the beauty behind that mystery of Jesus choosing weak men not smart men, not intellectuals, but simple fishermen, and yet making them into the pillars of his church. It's not just that they were kind of rough and tumble guys, but ended up being good instruments. Nevertheless, I suppose that makes us wonder that, that you know, it's quite striking to think that he used simple fishermen. And yes, that, that can kind of amaze us to a certain degree, and maybe historians historians, but what is particularly savorable or worthy of our meditation is that our Lord continues his work through men, because they, the apostles, and you and me, are in a, in a rather hard to understand way, we are members of the mystical body of Christ. The mystical body of Christ. The, the church is the mystical body of Christ, made up of its, of its failing members. And yet, we are not on life support, because it would seem like that in some history, some, some parts of history, it would seem that the church is on life support because so many members are either corrupt or, 
or I don't know, failing in some way or another. But of course, throughout history, there have always been saints. Even in the worst of times, there have always been great saints. Not all of them have been canonized. Eh? There are grandmothers and grandfathers and uh, aunts and uncles that are now enjoying heaven, even though they may ne never have been uh, recognized. And it shows how powerful our identification with him must be, since we are members of this mystical body of Christ, and how powerful our love for the church must be. We can say, I love Jesus, I love the Lord, but that cannot be in any way separate from loving the church. We see this when Jesus wanted to make sure with Peter that he loved him. Do you love me? Do you love me? He asked him three times. Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. But he didn't say, have you memorized all my doctrine? Have you memorized your lines? No. Do you have a photographic memory so you make sure you don't lose any of that stuff? You're going to be doing the MCATs. No. That's the medical entrance exam. No? Where you have to memorize a lot of things. But he didn't say that. He said, just do you love me? And then Jesus showed himself to his disciples, and after they had eaten, he said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than, than these others do? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. I tell you solemnly, when you were young, you put on your own belt and walked where you liked. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand, and somebody else will put a belt around you and take you where you would rather not go. And so St. John says in these words, he indicated the kind of death by which Peter would give glory to God. After this, he said, follow me. So the, <coughs> the Lord, of course, already predicted his martyrdom, that he would go where he would rather not go because somebody was guiding him there. And that could only have been the Lord himself, the Spirit of God. And, and that is why we must always reflect more deeply on our love for the Church and see if anything has come to harm that love or tarnish it or render it a little bit too human or too cynical when we think about the Church. And often when you hear reporters speaking about the Catholic Church, it's often done in a very human tone, in a very cynical tone, kind of acknowledging right away and almost only the failings of certain members of the Church. But they almost never have a deeper sense of what the Church actually is and the mystical body. And if that happens so often, and there is such a, let's say, a temptation to just see the human side of the church, it means we have to really reflect more deeply on the supernatural nature of the church, its the supernatural end, and how we are indeed members of the mystical body of Christ. We're not just members of the church. We can say, I am, no, I'm a Roman Catholic. Yes, but, but that means that I'm a, a member of the mystical body. In fact, so are Protestants, they're members of that mystical body. They don't say that they're members of the Catholic Church. They say, I'm a member of Episcopalian, Anglican, whatever. No. But they are, even if in imperfect sense, they are nevertheless members 
of the mystical body. So when we think about this, we have to really soak it in, like you would if you go in front of a beautiful paintings, a painting, and you go to a museum and you see a, a very famous large, large painting. You want to get up close, and maybe there's lots of other people. You want to see the, the brush stroke, uh, the line, the color. You look at it and you, you think, wow, this is a great masterpiece, you know, and you, you're looking at all the details and you go back and then you go in again, you see the whole picture, and then you go into that detail, that color, that brush stroke until eventually a security guard who's overzealous tells you to move back, you know, breaking the spell, eh? the enchantment of the moment. Eh? I've experienced that, you know. <laughs> You know, you want to just tell them, leave me alone, you know, but uh, you have to be nice, you have to be nice, you know. Well, the same happens with music. You know, music, uh, you know, you can listen to beautiful music and be enchanted by the, by the rhythm, by the words, you know. After all, you think, you know, why do people go to concerts? You know, in the past, of course, people went to concerts because that was the only place that they could hear music. They didn't have recording devices or anything, right? So the only place that you could hear Beethoven is if you actually went eh, to a concert and you were usually uh, a member of the privileged elite. Hmm? Now, to a certain degree, you could say that concerts are not necessary. You can hear the music perfectly. Maybe it's not live, but, but you can hear just on your MP3 player, you can hear it. But Nevertheless, people go to concerts to experience the seeing of the music being played. You know, it's when in fact it's all about listening, but they want to see the miracle of this singer's voice, the, the whole symphony, the conductor, everything playing together. It's, it's quite a visual experience, you know, in a rock concert, you know, they, they dry ice and uh, colors and laser beams and uh, kind of it's, it, it's all all-encompassing but why are we moved by art or by music hmm? and why are we moved as Saint our father was by by the reality of one holy Catholic and apostolic church because well we could say that God wanted to bring about a community of believers a family here that we would be part of the history of salvation. That you and I would somehow have an effect in the salvation of somebody or many people. And um, this, is quite, uh, this is quite awesome when you think about it. That it, Salvation is not simply a task that, that God sort of somehow does alone, but He involves us Obviously, not just priests or bishops, but he involves us in some way. And um, we read this in the Acts of the Apostles, where chapter 18 tells us about Paul, who met with a Jew whose name was Aquila, who was from Pontus. And he had been expelled from Italy. And it turns out this guy, Aquila, practiced the same trade as Paul. But as he worked, more and more, more and more, uh, Paul preached. More and more he did apostolate. More and more people were converted. 
I mean, how can you not be converted with the zeal of somebody like St. Paul? And then he got the help of Silas and Timothy. Of course, some Jews opposed him. But Paul was unflinching. He was strong. He was full of daring. And those seeing him were impressed, including a certain Crispus, who was the synagogue official. And because of what he saw in St. Paul, his whole household was baptized. It's kind of like he was, he was like a weak limb that was trying to work. Like, you know, when people have a stroke, sometimes one of their arms doesn't work anymore. And Crispus was like, a, like an arm that wasn't working. He was a Jew. He was trying to make himself part of the mystical body. And then he was baptized, his whole family together. And now it's as though the arm started working again. He could serve something in the body. And seeing Paul must have been intensely exciting. I mean, nothing could engage one more than what St. Paul was talking about, with the clarity, with the articulation that he had, all the languages that he spoke. He spoke Aramaic, he spoke Hebrew, he spoke Greek, he spoke Latin. He didn't speak English, but that's fine. There was no English back then, right? So, but there would... They would have these immense discussions, uh, and even among the apostles, you know, when remember when the Lord would say something, and the apostles would hear that, and they would say, oh, "Okay, well, that that must be this or that," uh, and uh, sometimes they would talk, compare with each other, you know, who's the greatest in the kingdom, and uh, often they just did not catch on, they did not understand, and that's why they ended up arguing and exchanging among each other. But when the Holy Spirit was present on the day of Pentecost, suddenly they received this security, this light, this confidence, this daring. Was there still some discussions? Of course, there were some heated discussions. Eh? But they, they would pray and they would deeply sense that the Holy Spirit was guiding them. You know, in the early church, at one point, I believe it was in the fourth century, they saw that there were many, many um, writings circulating letters, letters of St. Paul, purporting to be St. Paul, but not necessarily from St. Paul, the letters of St. John on the Apocalypse, and you know, obviously St. Matthew's Gospel, and then there were other Gospels, right? The Gospel of Barnabas, the Gospel of Thomas, and a lot of these were just like, you know, titles. They weren't actually written by those people. And so, well, the, the church had to sit down and see, okay, which ones of these are actually legitimate, are actually inspired by the Holy Spirit? And they came up with what we know today as the New Testament canon. And, of course, uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite something um, you know, to think that they could say, no, no, this is inspired and this is not inspired. I mean, how could they, how could they decide that? It meant they, the Lord had given them certain ideas, certain you know, grace, and they, above all, had a deep consciousness of working together, of, of being guided by the Holy Spirit. And once they had done that, obviously the reputation of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the letters of St. Paul, which were added, suddenly took on such a prestige and they were copied and copied and copied and copied I mean no ancient manuscripts have been as much copied as as the New Testament nothing nothing even comes close 
some of them were lost, and then they were copied again and again and again. It's quite, um, it's quite impressive that the fact that so many people came to have such confidence in the scriptures was not simply because the scriptures were so, that is the New Testament, were so, I don't know, vivid or well-articulated. I mean, it has lots of mistakes, you know, like, like grammar mistakes and, uh, and slight little contradictions here and there. But there was this deep conviction that the Lord had guided the, the early church into what was scripture. Nobody ever doubted any of that. It is true there were other texts circulating, but they were saying, good, you can read those if you want, but they are not scripture. And um, you know, it's amazing how Protestants, they say, oh, sola scriptura, we only believe in scripture. Yeah, but how did we come about that scripture? It could only have been because of the authority of the church. I remember um, in World Youth Day 2002, we had to walk from here all the way to um, this airport, Downsview Airport. So that's going up the Allen Expressway, walking, 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 walking. I mean, it was a long walk. There was no subways. Everything was too packed because, you know, lots of people were in town. And as we entered the Allen Expressway, there was like a ramp. If you ever, you've, I'm sure you've been there. You, you go down into this ramp. And at the entrance of that ramp, and everybody was just walking. There were no cars. Everybody was just walking. Just a, you know, a sea of humanity. There were all these people at the entrance. These were Protestants, and they all had these New Testaments. And as they saw all these Catholics, they were trying to show them, look, you know, you Catholics, you should read the New Testament. It might be uh, enlightening for you to read the New Testament, right? I don't know if you've ever read this. So I said to one guy, dude, we wrote it, you know. We wrote this thing, you know. <laughs> you know, what do you mean we don't know it. We wrote it. You didn't write it. We chose it. Dude. And he goes, ah, you know, grumble, 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 you know. And uh, it's true, we wrote it. Like, we wrote it, right? And the, sort of the Protestant tradition with Luke, uh, with uh, Luther, you know, trying to distinguish the church from the scriptures as though there are ever any difference. There was never really any difference. And, and so, um, you know, this was the early church, and we have to sort of continue this sense of enthusiasm, the sense of conviction, that the early church had about its role and its mission. And um, we do not claim, of course, to have a complete or adequate understanding of the church's intentions in, in calling the church into existence. But we affirm always that the denial of the church leads always to a distortion of authentic Christian life which, in which something is always... Something essential is always going to be lost if you deny the church or the necessity of the church. You'll, you'll keep some things, but a lot of things will be lost along the way. And true teaching is fragile and, and, and weakened and, and loses its stable coherence without the church. And so you could say that the church is like a, like a laboratory. It's God's laboratory for communal life before God. The model that the world can see and imitate as the basis for its rebirth uh, as God's uh, creation. That's what the church is described, you know, God's creation, God's new creation. But only within the body of Christ can 
the the pattern of the life life of others that Paul understands as the enactment of the mind of Christ. We we are really like the enactment of the of the mind of Christ. He said, bearing one another's burdens. He said, and what he calls the law of Christ, so that it finds um, full expression. And um, well, today, of course is a special feast for us, St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher, two saints. In particular, we give importance to St. Thomas More because he is one of our intercessors. And St. Thomas More was a very prestigious figure, right? In England in the 16th century, he was, he was Lord Chancellor, which meant he was the third person of highest authority in Britain after the king and then after the prime minister, it was the Lord Chancellor Thomas More. And he, he was there to serve the king. He had high prestige. He was very intelligent. He had a family. And he had four kids with that wife. And then that wife passed away. And then he, had, he remarried you know, to be able to take care of those children. Then he had another child with that second wife. But of course, in uh, the 16th century, so in the 1530s or so, uh, king Henry VIII, who was the king, uh, was not very happy with Catherine of Aragon because she wasn't giving him any offspring, or certainly not a male offspring, and he was like ticked at that. So he eventually wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, and Pope Clement VII said, "No, no, you don't need to marry uh, Anne Boleyn. She's like your marriage is perfectly valid." And well, uh, King Henry VIII didn't like that. So he demanded that he now, not the Pope, but he be the head of the church in England and that everybody accept his new marriage with Anne Boleyn. And well, it turns out that pretty well all the bishops in England agreed and accepted his marriage to Anne Boleyn, this false marriage, except John Fisher, who was uh, a bishop of Cambridge, and of course, except for Thomas Moore, who refused to accept it. And uh, well, as you know, they both ended up in the Tower of London, imprisoned, and were both treated uh, very, very harshly. And uh, I mean, strangely harshly, how, when you think about it, I mean, Thomas Moore, whom we perhaps know a little bit more about, he was not allowed anything, any books, nothing. And he was there for, I think, 14 months in the Tower of London, mistreated constantly, you know, barely given food, and he wasn't even given paper and something to write with. So he ma- they managed to smuggle in some paper, and he just had a little piece of charcoal to write his letters to his daughter, and even he wrote some beautiful uh, texts about the real presence in the Holy Eucharist. Mm-hmm. But it's all really hard to read and it had to be deciphered because you might have, all you have is a piece of coal to write. I mean, you're not going to exactly have the most elegant handwriting. No, but, uh, but what characterized Thomas More uh, was his good humor. He always had good humor. Despite the huge responsibilities that he had and the difficulties he had to undergo. And, um, you know, the, the story is that uh, as he was about to uh, mount the scaffold on his, as he's about to be executed in the guillotine, 
there was like a stair, you know, a few stairs to move up to the scaffolding, and he asked the executioner, you know, one of these guys dressed with the black hood, you know, and he said, uh, would you mind helping me, please? Uh, I need some help to mount, but don't worry about after. I'll be fine after, you know. And uh, so th the executioner helped him up, and then as he lay down on the plank where he's about to be, about to be executed, he said to him, and if you don't mind, please take care of my beard. I have taken a lot of trouble to to make it just so, you know. And uh, like <laughs> he's about to be killed, and he's uh, joking about his beard, right? And uh, of course, he he was always like that, you know, a man of great uh, integrity. You know? In fact, if you want to see a great movie, you should see Man for All Seasons which won the best movie of the year in 1966. The only guy I remember there is the guy who played uh, King Henry VIII uh, by Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw later played uh, Quint in uh, Jaws in 1976, I think it was. But um, he's a great actor. And he, you know, he really plays that role well. and it's a, great, it's a really great movie. It's a movie we often show to young people, you know, to show examples of, of virtue. But in the end, of course, yes, he was virtuous. Yes, he was good and, and, and had lots of good humor. But he, he understood that it was worthwhile dying for the sake of defending Clement VII, whom he didn't know, except he knew that he was the Pope. And that, you know, this was an example of defending his faith in the church, not simply in believing in Jesus Christ, which others, of course, believed as well. I mean, he must have had a deep and abiding faith in the church and a love for the church. He would not give in. He could have easily given in. He could have saved, I don't know, he could have become a super, I don't know, wealthy and, and, uh, and uh, very prestigious. Same thing with uh, John Fisher. He was the only bishop in all of England who did not give his consent to um, Henry VIII's annulment of his marriage with uh, Catherine of Aragon. And so um, well, you and I have to have that same uh, uh, love and uh, that uh, desire to be true, full members of the body of Christ. And we understand that one of the characteristics of Thomas More is that you know he was living sanctity right there where he was, in the middle of the present. He wasn't um, waiting for things to turn out well in a certain way, and then I'll be a saint. You know, as our father we used to say, like, sanctity is not like a, like a chemical experiment where you mix this, you mix the right uh, uh, time, you mix good health with, you know, other things going well, a good job, uh, nice people around you with a bit of cool air conditioning and then I'll be a saint you know and uh, no we have to be a saint right now regardless of the circumstances we cannot just be saints uh, or embrace sanctity just when things are going exactly as as we would want they often don't go as we want mm -hmm. and that's why we you and I have to love the church even when we see examples or let's say bad examples around us um, whether they be members of the church that are poorly formed, uh, whether they be bishops or anybody, we, we still know that this is the mystical body of Christ. Because only within this body of Christ uh, can this, this pattern of sanctity really ultimately uh, establish itself. 
and um, St. Paul expressly uh, called the church a mystery, called it a mystery, mysterium. And he said in his letter to the Ephesians, this beautiful passage, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be, might now be known to the principalities and to the powers in the heavenly places. That's why he said, you know, have boldness. It's through the church that this will truly happen. So let's ask uh, for this real love for the church, right? This faith that can even move us as they moved, this this faith moved our father, right? Because he knew that the church is kind of bulletproof from error. If you wear a bulletproof vest, it's not going to go through, as, as, as far as I know, you know, but, uh, but certainly... The church is doubly bulletproofed from error, even if she is surrounded by people weak in faith or weak in intellect or lacking in faith. So, so let us ask for that conviction that we are always active members of the mystical body of Christ. And Our Lady Queen of Apostles and Queen of the Church will intercede for us. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.